You know, he abbreviated the pattern, uh, tried to make a left turn to the runway. And uh, just as he turned uh, final onto the runway, he uh, must have descended into the outflow from that microburst. This is Soaring the Sky, a Glider Pilots podcast, coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and bringing you great soaring content from glider pilots all over the globe. We now join Chuck and our guest pilot. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. Before we get into this episode, I wanted to let you all know we are losing one of our crew here at Soaring the Sky. Unfortunately, Mitch Thompson, our producer, will be leaving the team. We will miss him greatly. Mitch, we want to thank you for all your hard work and dedication in helping us grow this podcast in the soaring community. It has been a wild ride. We've had a lot of fun. We wish you the best. And if you ever want to jump back on the mic and join us, even if it's just to say hi and tell us what you've been up to, you have an open invitation. Happy soaring and fly safe, brother. Western mountain air often generates supercharged thermals, endless convergence lines, and very high cloud bases. Epic conditions for epic flights. On this episode, we join Clemens Chivepeck from Chess in the Air on a soaring journey over the 55 tallest peaks of the Rocky Mountains and on a declared 1,000-kilometer FAI triangle flight across the entire state, the first ever such flight in Colorado. But there's also a dark side to such extraordinary conditions. When the air goes up extremely fast, it can come down even faster. Extreme downdrafts can be totally invisible, and when you encounter them at low altitude, they can be a deadly and sometimes inescapable trap. Schmalek Demonstein, one of the most experienced glider pilots in Colorado, recently died in just one such microburst accident. This is not an easy one to talk about. Clemens is here to discuss what may have happened on that day and how we can learn to recognize and better avoid this deadly trap. Clemens, welcome back to the podcast. Yeah, hey, Jack. Uh, I'm glad to be back. It's uh, It's been a while, It's but it's great to hear your voice again. Yeah, same here. It has been a while. Good to talk to you. Yeah, I wanted to talk to you today about a couple topics you wrote about recently on your blog, Chess in the Air. Uh, the first one is the microburst, one of the dangers we may face someday that happened to a pilot recently there in Garfield County, Colorado. Unfortunately, he did not survive the incident. It's really scary stuff, but what can we learn from this, and can we avoid something like this? Yeah, well, this has been a, a really tough one. Um, also, for me, it's and for people here because we all knew Shmulek uh, Demonstein, who you know has been. I've been flying with him actually in two seaters before, and you know he was one of the best and most experienced pilots uh, anywhere around. So it's a, this was a really really uh, eye opening. Uh, accidents that happened about uh, I would say about three weeks ago now, and uh, yeah, so the all in, all indications are, and uh, I wrote a lot about it. I actually, spent probably three or four days solid, uh, just doing research and trying to figure out what happened. Um, and uh, you know, I didn't have to do it on my own. There was some great reporting done by the pilots who were flying with Shmulek uh, that very day. Um, in uh, out of rifle, there were three other glider pilots, and uh, two of them shared with me uh, in a fair amount of detail uh, their observations of what happened. So, um, with that information, and then all the research I did into uh, into microbursts, uh, I think I was able to piece together a pretty solid uh, turn of events. Um, you know, there, there could be new information that could be coming out. The NTSB is investigating the just yesterday released a preliminary report and that preliminary report was, uh, was quite consistent uh, with, um, with my analysis. Um, but that's only the preliminary report and they will have more information uh, to go through. And, and usually in about two years, we will get a full report. Um, but I would be quite surprised if it turned out to be very different from, uh, from what we could see. Um, so, uh, well, I mean, maybe just to briefly recap, um, what, um, you know, the analysis shows uh, that might have happened. Um, I mean, Shmulek uh, was uh, coming back from a cross-country flight, very successful cross-country flight, you know, after about five hours. So for him, that's totally, uh, was totally usual. Um, he, you know, he flew last year 
he flew 35,000 kilometers. There were only six people in the world that flew more than, than he did. Wow. Uh, so he had, um, you know, so it's definitely somebody who had got, who had a lot of experience. Um, so he, he came back from that flight um, pretty high, you know, um, actually higher than normally would be considered safe. He came back to the airport with about 3,000 uh, feet of altitude. Uh, it was only two miles away at that point. There was some complication on the ground. There was a radio call from a from a jet on the ground that uh, they were taxiing for takeoff uh, to the runway that Shmulik was going to use for landing. Um, and then Shmulik offered to delay the landing. And then there was no response from the jet. So he wasn't sure whether the jet would actually pull out in front of him and take off or if they had heard him or, or not. So I think he was... Um, uh, he was a little hampered in his decision making, um, but I, I'm not sure if that is, was a, a huge factor in in the crash. It was it just a complicating. Uh, it was definitely a complicating factor. Um, but basically, what happened is that uh, as as he was then on downwind, he you know he's still on downwind on a normal altitude, maybe you know 1400 feet, 1500 feet above the ground when he very suddenly got hit by an enormous amount of sink. So he got into mm. 20 knots of sink, uh, 2,000 feet per minute uh, sink, wow. uh, just out of the blue, basically. Um, you know, that obviously once you're, uh, if you're at 1,500 feet uh, and you have 2,000 feet per minute sink, it doesn't take a minute. It only takes about 40 seconds before you reach the ground, right? It's just yeah. math. Wow. And so what happened is that he... he Tried to get to the, uh, tried to make a turn, uh, a left turn. Um, you know, he abbreviated the pattern, uh, tried to make a left turn to the runway. And uh, just as he turned uh, final onto the runway, he uh, must have descended into the outflow from that microburst. Mm. So, so uh, the, 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 the sink was caused by a microburst um, in all likelihood. As he, as he descended out, into in in his final turn, he descended into that air, into that outflow, um, which had a speed of I would guess around fifty knots. Um, there was a the ground station reported forty three knots a gust right at that time, um, and uh, typically at his altitude, a few hundred feet above the ground, which is where the outflow is typically the strongest that outflow is, is 10 to 20% greater than on the ground. So in all likelihood, the speed was about 50 knots uh, from, from the rear, directly from the back. And um, so if you, and he was, his ground speed was 92 knots, which uh, if you adjust that for the density altitudes, that basically is a, an indicated airspeed of around 80 knots. So if you have 80 knots indicated airspeed, uh, but out of that 80 knots, 50 is sudden tailwind. Uh, that basically means you're flying at 30 knots uh, real mm. airspeed. Wow. Uh, and if you had 30 knots airspeed, um, you know, uh, he was flying a glider that stalls at about, you know, in straight flight stalls about 40 to 43 knots. In in the turn, yeah. it would stall a little higher, around 50 some knots. So uh, there was, the glider stalled and spun in, and uh, that was recorded by a video camera, security camera on the ground. Uh, the people who were flying with him that day, they, they, were able to watch that video and uh, that's what's shown on the video is the glider stalled and spun in and once you spin in at um, 150 200 feet agl uh, there, there's absolutely nothing you can do there's uh, at that point uh, it's game over and uh, there's there's nothing you can you can do up there you can't react you can't get the plane to to fly again yeah. and so he hit the ground and uh, typically in, in th these are the worst kind of uh, so from a survival standpoint, these are the worst uh, type of, of accidents when the glider spins in on the turn to final because um, the, the nose will go down and the, the wing will hit the ground first and then you know, it basically uh, accelerates even more into the cockpit area immediately and the impact, the impact is as, as severe as it can possibly be. So mm. most of those accidents are, are not survivable and... Uh, so it's a, it's a very tragic accident. And uh, <clears throat> so it, it got my attention. And I think it got the attention of a lot of, of, of good people and it got a lot of good pilots because, um, you know, most of us would have been taken by surprise. I certainly, I certainly personally would have been taken by surprise. 
I don't know if I would have done anything differently. Uh, so for me, the question really then became, you know, what 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 could you do uh, differently? Are there things you can do differently? And and you know, and first of all, what what happened to begin with? Wow, I mean, you're coming into land that that's the sink alone is crazy. So you're dealing with yeah, that. the sink the sink alone is crazy. But so so let's talk. Let's explain with the microburst what what it is. And so basically, what you have and. You have microbursts uh, can happen anywhere, um, and they happen actually pretty regularly. The, there's two types of microbursts: there's wet microbursts and dry microbursts. And the the wet, uh, basically, what a microburst is is is, and it's it's almost like a reverse thermal. It's like right. the thermal that builds up the clouds, right? Where you have uh, the cloud as long as the cloud is building. Um, the uh, the air is is um, uh, is, is rising, uh, and then once you get when it's, it gets close to cloud base, uh, what happens close to cloud base is that the uh, that the 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 rising air uh, will start to condensate, co- um, condensate, and as it condensates, uh, the condensation sets off um, heat energy uh, because that's what happens when air condensates um, and uh, extra heat energy is released and that's what causes the cloud suck right so when we as glider pilots we fly below the clouds and we we love it uh, that as we fly relatively close to the cloud base um, there's there's extra energy and there's there's, you can often fly very you know long distances straight because you're flying in lift uh, and that lift is in part generated by that that cloud suck that can be actually in, in, in out in the West. This can get really, really strong, um, so strong. In fact, that uh, you know, sometimes you have to open the spoilers and to avoid getting pulled into the into the clouds. That happens to me, you know, um, several times a year. That yeah. uh, that it's so strong. So uh, what happens in the microburst is once the cloud is mature and it um, it dissolves. Um, there, there's there's rain starting to fall under the clouds, and what happens in the in the uh, in the western U.S. where the air is super dry, usually super dry on the ground, is that the the air that is falling, the rain that is falling, doesn't reach the ground, and that's what uh, we call verga, right? Verga is basically just rain that um, rain that evaporates before it hits the ground. Right. Uh, or snow that snow that sublimates. It's the same thing. It's kind of the and and so this this process of evaporation uh, that is the opposite of what happens through in the cloud suck situation. So in the as the air evaporates, it gets cooler. The same thing if you're in a, on a hot summer day and you dip your hand in water and then you take the hand out, you feel that it's really cool. Well, it's cool because the the moisture around your your hand uh, evaporates and that cools the air. And so the same thing happens with the verga. The verga evaporates and um, the air gets colder. And as the air gets colder, it gets heavier. And as it gets heavier, it accelerates downward. And so that's what happened on the, uh, he was flying, there were there was Vorga in the air, uh, not a lot, but there was. And so there, he, he entered into one of those, just in the wrong moment, he entered an area where there was a tiny, you know, it's a, these microbursts, they're not very big in diameter, they're usually, um, you know, maybe half a mile to two miles uh, or so uh, in, in diameter. And, and just right where he was underneath that verga, uh, that's where the downstream happened and the, this microburst. And, and this is it's basically just air that is streaming straight down towards the ground. And then obviously once the air, as it streams down towards the ground, once it goes and reaches the ground, it can't go into the ground, right? Uh, because right. <laughs> air, the wind, it's basically wind blowing straight down and the wind yeah. blowing straight down can't go into the ground. So it diverts and it diverts in all directions, uh, in, in all, you know, 360 degrees in all directions. And it instead of being a ground flow, it becomes a horizontal, a very strong horizontal wind on the surface of the earth. And uh, that wind can be super strong. It's like almost like a tornado type strength winds. Mm, yeah. uh, and it's very short lived. It's very localized. Um, but, you know, if it hits gliders on the ground, they get destroyed. There was a, an incident in Minden a few years back where several gliders got destroyed on the ground by a microburst. 
that's basically what happened is he was right, he was exiting this microburst area close to the ground, right as this wind, this outflow from this downburst, where it get, got, got diverted uh, towards uh, becoming a horizontal wind. And that horizontal wind is what caused the, the tail, the sudden tailwind and lost, he lost the energy and the glider stalled in. So that's, that's really, I think, what, uh, what happened. And he really couldn't do anything at that point. Yeah. What can we do to avoid that, uh, obviously, prior? Yes, we have to take action prior. And so the, 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 trick, the, the trickiest part is, um, and it's really hard to know, is, is to you know, figure out, could there be microbursts happening uh, as you enter the landing pattern? And that is very difficult to tell. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's hard to imagine that you would get into that situation out in the east um, because you don't have these dry microbursts. You have wet microbursts. And the wet microbursts, you can, you can readily see them because the rain that is falling, it's pretty strong, intense rain that's falling. And you can see it. There's, there's no question that you would be, you know, that you wouldn't see it. Um, but out in the West, where cloud bases are super high, there's Virga under the cloud bases, and it happens every single soaring day, uh, you know, all over the place. The, uh, it's very hard to see. So the first thing to watch out for is, is there any Virga anywhere? Right near near the airfield, uh, the danger is really close to the ground. The danger is below one thousand feet. Uh, above one thousand feet, it's it's unlikely that you will hit a strong uh, down uh, a strong tailwind. Um, you will still get the super strong sink, but you're not going to get the strong tailwind. But once you're below one thousand feet, a downburst, a strong sink will be followed almost by definition will be followed by a strong tailwind no matter which direction you're heading, it's always coming right after you because okay. that's how wow. the air flows, right? So so, the, so what you can do differently is on days where you see any warning signs, you know, any Virga, any warning signs, uh, you, can, you can try and stay really, really high and fly an unusual pattern. Okay. Um, so you, you may have to enter the pattern at 3,000 feet. You may have to fly to the end of your downwind you know, my, my strategy now, this is sort of what I took away from it for myself on days like this, if I have to land in, so first, the first situation is recognize it. Uh, if you recognize it, uh, then second, the second strategy is, is if there is a possibility, wait it out. So stay at a distance to the airfield, um, at a safe distance where you find yourself in rising air and just, just wait it out. Usually these things, Virga dissipates in within minutes. Right. So you may have to wait 10 minutes or so, and then, you know, situation should be better. Um, however, of course, there could be more Virga coming from other sources. I mean, it could be these days are super dynamic. So it's not, not, a, it's not a black and white situation. It's often complicated to yeah. judge. So, but the first thing is wait it out. If you can't wait it out, is there another landing option where there is not such a situation in place? So you could go to a neighboring airport. Uh, if there is, right? If there's a neighboring airport where you could land and there's no Virgar above, well, that's a safer option. But if that's also not an option, then you and you have to land, uh, then you have to figure out how can you fly the pattern in a way that keeps you safe. And the only way that you could do that, in my opinion, is that you stay super high along the downwind leg. So even if you hit 20 knots of sink on downwind, Right. Um, that uh, you're you're still at least at a thousand feet by the time you complete your turn to final, yeah. and so that's my strategy now. I've actually practiced this on on, on one of my recent flights. Is uh, just fly such an unusual pattern, enter you know two two and a half thousand feet in the pattern, uh, stay high on downwind, um, you know, flew the 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 turn to final with full spoilers. Uh, to get down to about a thousand feet uh, AGL as I completed the turn to final, um, okay. and then you obviously have to allow for a little more distance to the runway. So you, you, this is the this is the part where I think it's important to practice this uh, because uh, you, it's a very unusual pattern. Nobody is flying these patterns normally, right? And if you're not used to doing these patterns, uh, it, there's a big risk that you're going to overshoot the runway. Yeah. And, and end up uh, in the bushes at the end. 
or in, in our case, it's a lake uh, that's at the end. Oh. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> so so you, so you want to you want to make sure that this is something that you, you know you accustom to, to accustom to different site picture and and uh, and can avoid it. So, but I mean that's I think that's the only way because once you if you complete the final turn at a thousand feet. Uh, and fly a very steep approach with basically full spoilers towards the runway. Uh, the odds that you're now sudden and and fly fast too. So that's the other thing. You gotta fly yeah. fast. And if 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 you hit sink in the pattern, you gotta fly even faster. So in such a situation, my you know my glider's normal approach speed in calm air would be 60 knots. So if there is any virga around, I'm gonna just up it to 80 knots as a, as a baseline. So I'm going to yeah. add another 20 knots. And if I have additional sync, I'm going to add additional airspeed uh, equivalent to the sync. So in Schmulig's case, it would have been 100 knots because you would, uh, if I find a situation like this, I'm going to fly the pattern at 100 knots. Uh, and you know, for most people, it's like, oh my God, how can you fly a pattern at 100 knots? Yeah. <laughs> but in my, in, my, in my glider, I can. And this is, yeah. uh, this is another part of the problem. If you have a glider that cannot fly fast, uh, you're actually yeah. in even bigger trouble. Right, uh, my, I can't fly my glider. I can fly my glider at 100 knots in the pattern, and it won't be it won't be a problem. It, I mean, things will go fast, right? So you have to yeah. adjust for that. That the turn to final is gonna be a bigger radius, and uh, you you gotta be a really um, current and, and practiced pilot to do it. And uh, yeah. but that's but I think that's the only way how you could um, how you could avoid the same situation that Shmuley got in. And uh, it's still not easy to do. I, you know, I could still get caught uh, in in this uh, the same way as he as he got caught in it. So uh, it's not an easy situation. And uh, I, you know, no nobody that I met has said, you know, oh, Shmuley should have done this and this, and you know, yeah, it right, would not exactly. have been a problem. There's n- nobody has said that. Um, I actually got some interesting questions and comments from people, uh, and so some of them are, you know, that that. Uh, going to add a little addition to to this yeah, because yeah. some some are some are not very practical uh, suggestions you know i mean one one for example was uh, and i think this is this one is actually important to mention because because there's such a misconception about motor gliders uh, one question that i got was why didn't he start his motor he has a motor glider um, and yes he has a motor glider but if you don't understand what motor you know motor gliders have a lot of limitations uh, first of all a motor is not going to help you much if you're in 20 knot sync because your climb rate of the with these motors is typically four to five knots and so you might be able to reduce the sync from 20 knots to 15 knots if, yeah. if you if you have the motor running yeah. uh, so that won't do any good uh, also if you're in sync you try to usually you try and get out of the sync as quickly as possible by accelerating well once you have the motor the, the engine mast deployed uh, on on a glider like Schmulix, like most of those gliders with masts um, you cannot fly faster than 60 knots uh, otherwise the motor will shut down because it will yeah. overspeed and yeah. and then you only have a drag device you don't have anything else so starting yeah, the motor is definitely a no-go in those situations wings and wheels has been serving the soaring and sport aviation community for over 30 years they hands down have the largest and most comprehensive inventory of sailplane and soaring supplies in north america and they ship globally nearly everything you'll find on their site is in stock and ready for same day shipping Wings and Wheels is the exclusive American representative for HPH sailplanes. Be sure to check out the Twin Shark, their latest launch. They're also now the exclusive distributor in North America for the new Just Soaring Glider Sim Pro. The team has thousands of hours of flying experience in gliders and airplanes, staffed by Adam, Kelly, Julie, and Sean. A friendly voice will answer when you call or email them. Check them out at wingsandwheels.com. Yeah, there was a lot of chatter on Facebook about about the accident, which there should be. It's important to talk about it, and that's why we're talking about it. Hopefully, save some lives. And yeah, yeah. I mean, this is not a, this is, it, but it, I mean, there are some some. You know, this is one of the observations of one of the pilots flying with Schmulik that day was that the keep the way he put it is that some atmospheric events are bigger than our plastic sailplanes. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there's a there's a point to be made there. And there was an article in Soaring Magazine called uh, 
Rogue Air, I think it was called about five years ago, um, that focuses more on these kind of extreme, on extremely strong narrow thermals rather than on downbursts. It does mention microbursts too, it talks about them too, but it, it focuses more on rogue air events where the air is suddenly rising very quickly in a very localized fashion. We do see this with dust devils occasionally, right, in the yeah. in the West. Uh, and um, yeah, there was a, video, a YouTube video, uh, anyone can Google that. If you go on YouTube and you say flying porta potty, uh, you will find uh, uh, one of those events where suddenly a, a porta potty was picked up at a park in Denver and it just basically uh, flew 50, you know, 150 feet or so straight up into the air uh, wow. before it came crashing, crashing down again. So oh. uh, whenever I watch that video, I'm like, what do I do if I fly the glide? If this happens on short final, right? yeah. I'm, on short, right. I'm on short final and suddenly I hit an airflow like this that uh, that can lift the porta potty 150 feet into the air straight from a mm. park. Yeah, uh, wow. It's super scary, um, yeah. right? Super scary. And if you look at the air on that day, you don't see a lot of warning signs. These things happen right yeah. out of the blue. It's scary. I mean, I was reading your blog and about the accident. I was like, wow. I mean, you're asking yourself, what would I have done? I. Like you said, I mean, most of us wouldn't have probably done anything different. I mean, it, it happened so fast and so many things to, to deal with all at once and almost impossible, could be very well impossible to get out of once you're in it. Yeah, I mean, it definitely is impossible to get out of once you get hit by that, by that tailwind and you're at 200 feet. Uh, at that yeah. point, it's game over. So, yeah, yeah. so what you have to do is you have to avoid at all costs to get into a situation where a sudden tailwind, a 200 feet AGL, is going to cause your glider to stall. Right? That's that's yeah. that is the that is the event that you have to avoid at all costs. So, yeah. how do you avoid it at all costs? As I said, I mean, if if you have to fly a pattern in conditions where uh, where such a weather is possible, you, you basically have to fly the pattern in a way that allows you to complete the turn to final at about a thousand feet. Because now you, you, you avoid having to turn the glider below that thousand feet where, where that sudden tailwind will become a real problem. Yeah. Uh, and then you're in short final and you can fly a really fast short final. So even if it happens at that point, you might still be able to make, you know, you should still be able to make the runway and you still, you should be able to keep control of the glider. Yeah. Uh, but that's a very unusual pattern. I don't know any, I mean, maybe there is some uh, glider port out there that is training this, but I'm not aware of any training uh, that is happening like this. So we have in our club, we now have a discussion about this, about, you know, should we train for this and how should we train for this and how can people get prepared for it? I mean, I'm, I'm training it for myself, but that's a different thing than than instructors going out and, and making it part of the curriculum. It's definitely, I don't, I'm not aware that this is part of any curriculum anywhere. Well, now, I mean, it, it should be after this and hopefully we'll get the word out and we'll really think about it. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, uh, I, I hope so. I mean, and, and maybe there are other solutions than the ones that, that I have come up with. But I mean, these are, these are the ones at least that I'm going to use uh, for myself. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not. I wrote this in my article too, right? I'm not a. I'm not a fatalist. I don't like to leave things to chance, uh, especially not in my life. Yeah, and uh, yeah. so I will do. I will do whatever I possibly can to develop strategies uh, uh, that I can execute that will try to mitigate uh, those risks as much as as that's possible. Absolutely. Clemens, I did want to talk to you. I wanted to congratulate you first, but I wanted to talk to you about it also. But uh, congrats on your first 1,000-kilometer declared FAI triangle there in Colorado, I believe a record, right? Yes, yes. Uh, so well, this is <laughs> that's a good uh, change of topic. <laughs> mm. uh, yeah, this was a happier, it's a happier topic. Yes, this was the first uh, time that a 1000 FAA triangle has ever been flown in Colorado, which, which surprised me, um, quite frankly, because Colorado is is a fantastic place to fly. It's, uh, it's really amazing. Uh, we have, you know, enormous, you know, very, very strong mountain 
conditions, very strong thermals, often super strong convergence lines uh, over long distances uh, that allow you to fly really fast. Um, but the thousand triangle is a really difficult beast if you have a mountainous environment with multiple mountain chains. Uh, because what happens with these high mountain chains is that they they tend to separate the, the weather patterns, right? They they tend to um, you know the, they tend to separate air masses. So you have you have one air mass on one side of the mountains, you have a different air mass on the other side of the mountains. And basically, what you need for a thousand triangles, you need a day that works all across these mountain ranges <laughs> uh, with uh, yeah. air masses that are that are cooperating in all parts of your task area. Uh, you also need a day that starts early and doesn't blow up a few hours later because you need the whole soaring day. You need to take off very early and you need to be able to fly until a little bit before sunset. Otherwise, you won't be able to complete the distance. So it's uh, and then you can't have too much wind because if you have too much wind then the thermals tend to break up and that doesn't work. So it's the conditions have to be right. There isn't not many days when the conditions are right. Um, So so one reason I think why it took so long um, to do this is that the historically the weather forecasts just weren't good enough. Uh, You know, just this is what I think we will see a lot more of these because uh, now it's it's really good. I mean, especially I really give a lot of kudos to to Matthew Scudder at SkySight because he has he's really developed a platform that is so much so easy to use. Uh, I mean, the, the data was out there before, but he made it really accessible to anyone. And the, the weather preparation doesn't take me more than 20 minutes, uh, 20, 25 minutes, maybe. Um, oh, wow. And, but that, that would not have been possible um, yeah. without a tool like, like his tool. So, yeah, so it's a, that, was a, that, was a great, uh, that was a great flight and uh, I'm really happy to have completed it. You were getting up early then when you thought it was a good day and checking things out and obviously you found the right day and you went for it or did you try a couple times uh on this one actually this was my first 1000 well i had one declared attempt but i didn't really believe that it was going to happen and uh it uh and i gave up on that attempt very very early so basically as soon as i i launched uh, maybe even mentally had given up on it before I even launched. So I'm, I'm not, I think this is the first time that I, that I thought this is a serious possibility. And nice. um, yeah, and I mean, I was prepared the day before, you know, typically the way I do these things is I, I prepare them the day before uh, in the evening. I look at the, the latest models once they're in, usually at 8 p.m. You have to fold the, the models in for the next day, which are, which are pretty right. reliable. So at that point, I plan the whole thing out set my task, uh, my turn points that are all sort of aligned with the best weather um, and uh, the the direction of the task. And I look at the wind speeds uh, across all the angles. And there's a lot of thought that goes into it. It doesn't take me longer because I've just done this so many times that I've planned these flights. But uh, so if somebody is is new to this, it it can take hours. But once you've done it several times, uh, it, it really in 20, 25 minutes, you can do it. Yeah, so you plan it the day before uh, in the morning. Um, I'm going to review it again and see if anything has changed. In this case, remarkably, remarkably little changed uh, in the forecast, which which is even a greater confidence booster because then you say, okay, well, you know, if it, if if that was the forecast uh, 16 hours ago, 14 hours ago, it's still the forecast now. It, it's probably pretty reliable. Yeah, <laughs> and, right. and, yeah. And, uh, and so, and, and it worked out, it, it really, uh, worked out just as, uh, more or less as, as planned. I mean, there's always some, there's always some quirks and there's some, always some, uh, some chinks that, that is going to get thrown your way and some things that are unexpected. But, uh, for the most part, I would say 90% of that flight was, uh, pretty much as I had imagined it to be. Well, you have some amazing pictures you shared there on your blog. And of course, you go into more detail about the flight itself. But what what time in the morning did you start? When did you take off? Um, I think around 10 a.m. Uh, and I probably should have taken off even a little earlier. I think I, li- I launched, I think the tow started a little before 10. Uh, but I think 9.20 was probably the time when it could have, I could have launched at 9.20. What do you uh, tell AGM? It's like 950. Oh, 
probably res relatively high on that day. This this is but this is this is typically for typical for Boulder. So basically, the, the conditions we have is the the foothills will develop early, and the prairie where the airport is, right? The airport is three four miles out into the flats, right? And uh, over the over the flats, you don't get any air movement in the morning. So this right. is usually okay. totally in, inverted. So you have to get over the foothills. Okay, and uh, the tow the tow plane needs a good amount of altitude to get over the foothills. Otherwise, they uh, you know yeah. they're in trouble if they have an engine failure. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So so we will not go close over the ground over the foothills. We will go over a little bit in circles before, and then we will go out over the hills. Um, okay. I, yeah. I would guess probably about I was probably at about five thousand AGL uh, okay. or so yeah. on tow. Yeah. Before I released, yeah. And you, when did you land? Um, I, I think around seven, it was nine hours to flight. Uh, okay. it was, yeah. uh, I would say about nine, uh, I can actually look it up here. Uh, nine you're, is, you're uh, moving along pretty good then your average speed. Yeah, it wasn't super high. Uh, the average speed was around 120 kph or so. So that, yeah. that yeah. actually is not super high. So it's, yeah. it's, um, yeah, it's not super high. And landing was at 7 p.m. Yeah. Okay. Just nice. two two minutes before 7, yeah. Nice. Had some daylight left. I had some daylight left, yeah. There was uh, over an hour of daylight left. Nice. Uh, there nice. was the, the clouds had started to, you know, fall apart. They had recycled a little bit. I mean, they, there was virga and, and showers before, and um, there were, you know, but the sun came back out and it, it rebuilt again. Um, it wasn't super strong at the end, but it, it was enough to get me back home. Last time you and I talked, we were talking about your 14er journey, and you can briefly describe that for those listeners that don't know what that is. But I wanted to ask you how that's going. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I've completed it. So, <laughs> so nice. I'm uh, nice. excited Congrats. about that. Yes, thank you. Uh, this is this is a really cool adventure. So for anyone listening, you know, if you want to spend the summer uh, or two in Colorado, <laughs> this is this is one of the <laughs> coolest things you could possibly do. Uh, basically, there is a mountaineering challenge, which is you know basically all the the mountain climbers in Colorado what they aspire to as a career achievement is to climb all the fourteeners, which are all the all the peaks in Colorado that are more than fourteen thousand feet tall. And um, the, one of our club colleagues uh, put this out as a challenge with a trophy. Uh, for anyone um, to do the same thing in a glider, you basically have to fly over all of those 14ers. And there's there's 55 of them. Uh, they're spread out across many mountain ranges across the entire state of Colorado. And uh, so it's a it's a it's a, also a career challenge. It's not something you can go and say, okay, today I'm going to do the 14ers <laughs> in Colorado. Yeah. Uh, that is that is not a possible <laughs> thing. Uh, I, I did measure the distance that's required, but <laughs> out of curiosity. But yeah, what was the distance for all of them? I, I think it would be about 1,200 uh, kilometers. So from a distance oh, wow. standpoint, you. In theory, it might be possible, but that you can fly 1,200 kilometers exactly the way that all these mountains yeah. are, that is completely, <laughs> that's, it's out of the question. That is, yeah. uh, you know, that is out of the question. I, you know, I don't think we will see this in, in, in several lifetimes um, <laughs> that anyone will do that. But um, so it's, it's typically a career challenge. So you basically uh, go and have to go and fly above all these, uh, all these mountains. Um, and it's easy to prove that you were there with the with the with the trace. And basically, what you do is you set them up as turn points, and you just you know tag one of them, uh, uh, you know tag one after the other. And um, uh, it took me four years and four days to from my first one to the to the last one. Um, and I think I'm now the sixth pilot that has done it. So there's this. Oh, nice. We're, we're now and so the challenge has been out there since 2008. I believe so. It took okay, about yeah. it took four it took fourteen years to for the six people to yeah to get there. So it's it's not something you can go and do overnight. But there are two no. people who have done it within within one season. Um, wow! And uh, <laughs> that's quite remarkable. And uh, so that's what I'm saying. If somebody wants to come and spend a summer in Colorado and uh, tackle the Fortina challenge, it's it's there for the taking. Yeah, I was going to say, did they <laughs> have a day a, job? Well, no, you can't have a day job. 
<laughs> yeah, I didn't think so. <laughs> this only works if you don't have a day job. Yeah, right. So. But this is it's a it's a as a career challenge. It works uh, even with a day job. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But it's a it's a very cool it's a very cool thing. It's it's very complicated. I mean, these mountains are you know some of them are really inaccessible. Uh, there you you have to have days where the cloud bases are super high. Um, and uh, you want to have a lot of nice cumulus clouds so that you are, you can be confident that you can fly in some of these areas where there's really no place to land. Uh, yeah, that is, that is part of part of the big challenge here. Yeah, I was going to say those mountains are pretty rugged. You better make sure. Yeah, there's. I mean, the the San Juans, for example. I mean, they are the those are the hardest ones. The San Juans are a, a very wide mountain range. Um, it's you know, I don't know. Distance-wise, maybe uh, 200, 200 miles from east to west, uh, 100, 150 wow. miles east to west, and, and maybe 70, 80 miles north to south. And, uh, and there's no place to land as you go from north to south. So yeah, um, right. you, 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 if, you, if you can stay close to 18,000 feet, which is as high as we can legally yeah. go, Right. Um, and uh, obviously for the challenge, you also have to observe those uh, those requirements and we have to observe it any t- anyway. Um, so uh, the, you basically, if you can fly around 17,000 feet, you can always keep an airboarding glide uh, <clears throat> unless you hit microbursts. Well, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, but um, yeah, but it, you basically want to have a day where you can be, where you can stay really high. So, what are your plans for the rest of the summer, as far as soaring goes? Um, yeah, so so we have a soaring camp coming up in Nephi, uh, you know, Bruno Vassal's home. Yeah, so we're gonna go out to Nephi as a club with a few people, um, fly from there for a few days, and um, yeah, and then uh, the. I don't have specific. I'm not doing any contests this year, so um, okay, yeah. Um, We'll see. September is usually 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 a good time. I still look. Yeah, there's still a, a few sort of uh, things on my bucket list. Uh, you know, some Colorado State records that I'm looking at, and uh, okay. some you know some 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 other interesting challenges. I haven't done a border to border, for example. I've tried that twice now, and uh, both times have not been successful. This is where you take off in Boulder, you fly to the uh, typically fly to the Colorado New Mexico border, then you turn around. You fly to the Wyoming border, uh, you turn around, oh, wow. you come back, you come back home, and uh, wow. shortest shortest distance on that is uh, 940, I believe, 940 kilometers. Um, oh. yeah, obviously, you want to try to make it into a 1,000 kilometer flight um, if you can. Um, so that's I've tried that twice. I've made the southern border twice, but I <laughs> I didn't then make the northern border. So. <laughs> Because um, right. the days the days died in both cases, um, but that's still uh, on, on my bucket list. Uh, I've not flown to Utah and back, so that's another one. Um, and, okay. Yeah. Uh, then and then there's another cool idea of, uh, if if I can line up two good back to back days. Um, I you know I was thinking about flying from here to to uh, Nephi uh, and then taking staying oh, overnight, nice. taking taking a tow the, a tow there the next day and, and come back. But you need two days that really work across that stretch, and again, that's a lot of of tiger country that you have to fly over. So you yeah. you need really good days with high cloud bases and reliable thermals to make those to make those days work. Well, Clemens, thanks for hanging out on the podcast again. It's really nice catching up with you. Yeah, well, it's uh, it's always a pleasure, Chuck. It's uh, the, you know, it's, you, you make such a great, create such great content. So I I keep listening to all of you. All of your guests, well, thank so you. it's, a, it's always fun. Yeah, we're having a lot of fun putting some content out, and yeah, hopefully everybody's enjoying it, and we'll just keep going. Yep, yep, excellent. Yeah, well, keep keep at it. It's uh, it's fun. Our longtime sponsor of the show, the Soaring Academy, is engaged in nonprofit outreach work with local area veterans and also with young people for the STEM programs at their top-notch Gliderport facility just outside of Los Angeles, nestled near the north side of the San Gabriel Mountains, They also have a fantastic flight school and are continuing to turn out great glider pilots every month. If you like to donate to their nonprofit initiatives or learn more about their flight school, go to SoaringAcademy.org or check them out on Instagram at Soaring Academy. 
Hi everyone, Sergio from Soaring Master here, bringing you tips and advice about soaring. Today we're going to talk about a part of the sailplane flight envelope that not many pilots are familiar in using it, the yellow arc. The yellow arc, or the caution airspeed range, is a part of the flight envelope seldom visited by many pilots. Most have never taken their ships there and on the other hand, some few pilots explore it a lot more than they should. The yellow arc is there in our airspeed indicators with a yellow color for a considerable extension of the speed range before the sailplane's maximum permitted airspeed for some reasons. The first is to offer pilots a good airspeed buffer to perform recoveries from high-speed dives uh, from maneuvering or any other reason that might have taken us beyond the maneuvering speed. The reason why it is painted in yellow color and being named its caution range is because the sailplane flying in those speeds is designed to withstand lower acceleration levels in the range of plus 4 or minus 1.5 Gs. The sailplane will be limited both in positive and negative Gs and control surfaces deflections will also be limited to one-third of their full displacements. The reason behind these limitations are the certification requirements behind sailplane design, which drives this reduction in allowable load factor and surface deflections. And why is that? Because a sailplane structure designed to resist flight loads on the same way of the green arc up to the sailplane's maximum speed will be just too heavy and this would affect the sailplane's performance and other design aspects. So the requirements give designers some room to make the sailplane still reach those maximum design speeds at the expense of some allowable load factor and surface deflection. And how does that affect you? Well, all sailplane manuals come with a big warning when describing the limits of the yellow arc. Only one-third of control maximum deflections is permitted and maneuvers must be conducted with caution and only in smooth air, or something like that. That's why it's super important to consult your manual limitations before flying because some additional restrictions depending on the type might be there. When reach flying at high speeds in descent from away flights or final glides performed in active atmosphere with higher ring loadings, it's not rare to face updrafts and downdrafts that can cause instantaneous G readings of 4 or minus 1.5 Gs. Uh, the problem with flying the yellow arc in conditions like that is the risk of structural deformation, cracks and other serious consequences from exceeding flight loads. And yes, unfortunately we do see pilots flying and exposing themselves to that. Uh, what they are doing is reducing their margins from an incident. Does that make the yellow arc a dangerous flight regime? No, for as long as the flight conditions and pilot handling are kept within the flight manual limits. From the practical point of view, final glides performed in the yellow arc are considered high-energy final glides and they pose a higher risk of overshooting the pre-planned arrival height because you'll be in a condition uh, diving at a high speed and in the need to speed up more to cross the arrival within the planned arrival height. Uh, that's why the, every pilot must assess the atmospheric conditions ahead in the final lab to determine the starting point of the final glide and the MacReady setting to be adopted. If the conditions are flat calm, the pilot might even consider flying beyond the maneuvering speed, but he must closely assess whether the conditions allow it. Personally, I would never consider using more than 10% of the yellow arc. 
For wave flying and mountain flying, things are a bit more complicated. Uh, it's not possible to guarantee the absence of rotors without condensation and conditions like that. And it pays off to be on the conservative side and maintain ourselves within the green arc in, in, when wave flying or, or mountain flying. Safety always comes first. Uh, so that's why I believe that it's a good practice to mainly fly in the green arc and leave the yellow arc as it is labeled, just a caution area for transitory use. That's it guys, see you in the next episode and for more tips follow me on Instagram at SurreyMaster or check my website SurreyMaster.com If you would like to say hi and let us know where you are enjoying the podcast, we would love to hear from you. If you are a glider pilot and want to share your aviation journey, contact us at chuck at soaringthesky.com or send us a message on our website at soaringthesky.com and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next time for another soaring adventure here on Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast. Soaring the Sky is written and produced by Chuck Fulton, co-producer Mitch Thompson. Original music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton. Voiceover work was done by Michelle Perez.